Matrix vector multiplication, of course, is n squared. The difference between n squared and n cubed when n is 400,000 is really important. And so this method is called the power method. Welcome to Occupations, the podcast, where we discuss what it's like to hold specific jobs. Occupations is brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com, where you fulfill your vintage map gifting needs. Visit LotsOfMaps.com. Hi there, Andy Jagelinzer here for Occupations. Welcome. Uh, today's guest is Mark Crovella. He is the professor of computer science at Boston University. He is also the professor of computing and data science, which is a new unit that is created there. And he's going to tell you more about that uh, right now. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Andy. I'm great. How are you? Great. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Um, as you know, here in Occupations, we like to talk about jobs unusual jobs is is usually the case um but interesting jobs i think is the most important thing and uh and i find your job very interesting um uh, there are lots of professors out there in the world no question about it but the one thing that i find so interesting about your type of of teaching is that you're dealing in technology and technology changes every two seconds for sure and trying to understand how you keep up on that is going to be uh, uh, what what I feel is is interesting and um, you sort of seeing the future and the now um, I think is fascinating uh, especially in technology so oh, that's great I, I'm, I'm eager to talk about all that excellent um, full disclosure Mark is here for the second time <laughs> um, not his fault we he was the first one I interviewed and uh, we had some technical, I had some technical issues um, with some of my gear. So uh, the recording came out awful, um, not for what Mark said or what I said, but for the techni technical issues that we had. So Mark it was so kind enough to come back a second time and sit through uh, my gobbledygook and, uh, and go through it again. So thank you, Mark, for making the trip a second time. No problem. All um, the way up the mountain. Yeah, here and, uh, it was great the first time. So I'm eager to recreate the magic. I think by the fifth time, you'll really <laughs> love it. Okay. Um, Mark, so let's jump into your job. Um, tell me what a professor of computer science is. We'll start with that part of it. What, what do you, obviously we know what a professor is. Mm -hmm. Uh, we know Boston university is a undergrad. You do, um, um, post-grad as well. Yep. Yep. So I teach at the undergrad and graduate level. I mean, a professor, just to set the stage, really does three things in the context of university. They do teaching, they do uh, research, and they do different kinds of service, both within the university and uh, outside to their profession. And the combination of teaching and research is, it's kind of an interesting combination because they don't necessarily go together, but it turns out they do support each other pretty well in practice. There are different enterprises, you know, research is a sort of discovery of new things, pushing boundaries of knowledge. Um, teaching is trying to pass on what we understand to other students. And the job primarily is, is finding a sort of a balance between those two things on a, on a daily basis. So obviously there's a difference between a math or an, an English teacher and a computer science teacher. I mean, clearly your 
world changes constantly. Um, how does one keep up with that kind of, uh, I mean, you must spend more time doing research than you do actually teaching, but maybe I'm wrong, but uh, boy, it seems like it changes every five seconds. Yeah, it ebbs and flows. The time that you spend on research um, ebbs and flows over the academic calendar, over the, the yearly calendar. The uh, effort that you put into research, though, uh, continues because, as you say, you have to um, be aware of what's going on. If you're going to try to contribute to add add new knowledge to the world, you've got to be aware of what's already out there and what and what's being developed on a daily basis. So, yeah, we we have to uh, we all professors, you know, have to spend time just keeping up, just keeping track. Um, the typical ways we do that. I mean, it's, it's a very social enterprise, right? So the typical ways you do that are through interacting with other people. You talk to other researchers, you talk to other experts, scientists, and you find out what they're doing. A lot, a lot of, uh, what looks like a lot of the mechanics of research are just conversations, which you're finding out what other people are doing and you're kind of learning from them what they think is important, what kinds of questions they want to investigate and what, you know, how they're approaching them and what strategies they're using and what they've accomplished. So all those things happen in, in conversations. Those conversations can be in conferences. They can, you know, getting together in, in social settings is really important for that. Um, and it's been, you know, as we've gone through COVID, that's definitely taken a hit. But also, research products get disseminated as papers. Right? That's what professors do. They write papers. They send them to each other. And so a lot of it is reading what other people have been doing, reading other people's papers. and Do you huddle up with other professors yeah, as well? For sure. So, you know, you will have uh, uh, research group meetings that will involve other professors. Sometimes these are uh, paper reading sessions where you get together and you all review a, a new paper together or an old paper and try to understand it and work through it and think about new ideas that might come from it. There's a lot of, a lot of different contexts and settings where these conversations happen. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, and as far as outside of your circle of professors, um, I imagine you do a lot of reading and a lot of um, surfing the web and seeing what's out there as well. Uh, are there other folks that you you lean on as well? Is there a certain sect of folks that you have uh, in, well, you're in Boston, so in the yep. Boston community, in, yep. in the international community? Do you, are there yep. others out there that you reach out to, particularly about a specific subject? or? Yeah, for sure. One of the things that's really interesting that's changed a lot in the past 10 years, how much really solid scientific and technical information uh, comes through uh, these sort of non-traditional channels like blogs or through Twitter. Uh, it's amazing how high the level of discourse is around technical subjects on these places that didn't exist, you know, 10 or, or 20 years ago. People put a lot of effort in. People seem to get a lot of satisfaction out of doing a great job explaining a new technology describing an, a new research result in blogs, in Twitter, uh, other places like that. And so it's really 
uh, it's become a big part of my day to make sure that I'm keeping tabs on those things. And you can literally, you can spend all day reading extremely, really good, you know, summaries and oh, I, scientific I, results. I believe it. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's kind of my, uh, my fascination with your job because, um, uh, how can you stop yourself from reading? I mean, there's just got to be endless amounts of data out there for you to, for sure. to sift through. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. And if you're someone who likes to learn, you know, most professors are like that, then it can be all-consuming. So you have to actually pace yourself and figure out, well, this week, here's how much time I'm going to spend. There are those things like teaching and, and the other responsibilities that I was mentioning where you, you really have to, you have to do those regardless. And so finding the right time to educate yourself is kind of sometimes in between the cracks. Do you ever find yourself that your students are teaching you? Oh, man, for sure. I mean, it happens in the classroom. It happens with uh, undergraduates. Um, I had this week a, a student who came to me, asked me a question about something I've been teaching in lecture, and I've been teaching this for maybe 10 years. And he was right. There was something that I hadn't appreciated about what I was saying. And he really pushed on it. And, and I learned something pretty valuable about a pretty common subject from his comments. More often where you really learn from your students is when you're, is when you're engaging in research with them. Because when you're pushing, like I said, pushing those boundaries, everybody, it's a team effort and everybody contributes ideas. And uh, sometimes you're working with students, graduate students typically, and they bring to you an idea or result and you're like, wow, that changes my whole perspective. I just learned something really important. Again, it's part of the social experience of research. It's, it's a very uh, interactive process. Well, and then on top of that, you're dealing with kids of a different generation. Every few years, they're changing generations. And not only do you have to learn the subject matter, but you learn how to deal with the, the, the kids as well. It must not be easy in combination with the two. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, learning styles have changed a lot as years have gone on. Students nowadays are they're frequently have done a lot of their learning from video. Producing a useful video for them is a really a much more important component of teaching than it used to be. So, you know, you try. You try to stay in touch with students well enough so that you understand what works for them at the same time you recognize that you're the old fogey in their eyes and there's nothing you're going to do that really makes you uh, relate to them in a, a way that they would relate to each other. But you try, and you try to, to connect with them where they are so that you can, so you can teach. Maybe you can get one of them to come over and uh, reset my, my clock on my VCR. <laughs> That's right. All right, yeah. I just dated myself pretty badly there. <laughs> um, so we skipped one thing. Um, you are also newly the professor of computing and data science. Um, new unit? Right, right. So uh, the data science part, uh, I think, is the, where the, you know, what explains what's going on there. Within uh, Boston University, there's been uh, a new organization that's formed around data science. And it's not... Uh, organizationally in the same place that the computer science department would be. And that's intentional. The reason is that data science, as, as you know, people 
are aware, it's it's starting to pervade many, many disciplines, many subjects, people using data intensively to investigate questions across all kinds of disciplines and departments in the university and in the world. And so it, it was important when uh, Boston University started a program in data science to make sure that that was a program that was going to be explicitly interdisciplinary, that was going to connect to many different parts of the university. And so for that reason, it's it's been organizationally separated and it stands on its own, like a school or a college within a university. So my appointment, my um, association is now 50% in each of those, 50% in computer science and the other 50% in data science. And that means I'm spending my time, you know, evenly split between those two. So do you deal with, uh, I imagine you deal with the math department specifically in analytics potentially as well? Is that part of the data sciences as well as far as analyzing the data? For sure, yeah. So data science we think of as having kind of three components. It, there's a the ability to make decisions using data, which really comes from statistics, and the ability to process data and efficiently get results out of data, which comes from computer science. And then the third part is really the application in a particular discipline. There's all sorts of ways in which the computing and the, and the statistics combine to answer questions, whether it's economics or history or medicine or law or business. So analytics, for example, is popular in uh, business, and we do um, we have a close relationship with the business school. Their students take our courses. Our students take their courses. We have you know a very close relationship with the math and at BU. It's math and statistics in a single department, and very many of the faculty in this unit come from math and statistics, as do many from computer science and other parts, computer engineering, other parts of university too. Yeah, I mean. I mean <laughs> You can't do anything today without somebody wanting to cap capture your information so they can gather statistics on you, whether it's shopping at the store or go online and, you know, can you answer a quick survey? Everybody seems to be using it, and it's it seems to be in all walks of life. Uh, it's inescapable, I think. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there's good sides and bad sides to that. We do try to understand both those, both those sides. So, for example, on the good side, those, that kind of information can give you a better experience, one that's more customized to yourself. It may, you know, Amazon may show you a product that you think that oh, that's exactly what I want. The downside, of course, is that all this information is being stored, kept within the, the vault of these large companies, and it's being used to essentially surveil us to look at what we're doing, and there's. A bunch of ways in which that's not good, in which uh, it has a bad impact on society. And one of the things that I like about the, the computing and data science program is that it explicitly expects students to consider the, the implications of the technologies they're developing, the ethical implications, the ways in which the technologies they develop impact society and the ways in which society impacts technology. All of those things are really woven into the curriculum, to the way in which degrees are, are defined 
within uh, data science at BU. Yeah, I uh, I imagine it's sort of like creating the atomic bomb. You don't want it to fall into the wrong hands. The information that you're that you're creating, to some degree, obviously not to that to that level. But I, I know AI is a big part of computer science these days, For and sure. there's certainly yeah, absolutely people are seeing Amazing potential impacts of danger AI. potentially down the line. Although it's it's in its infancy, it's already doing some pretty amazing things. Um, yeah, we've been uh, taking close looks at generative AI in the past six months. Um, generative AI being the kind that creates images or text. Sometimes you prompt it and it gives you something back, right? And that's been a big source of concern in the university because of the impact that it can have on uh, teaching. Right? Students can use ChatGPT to generate an essay that looks an awful lot like an essay that is a person would write on their own. So that's been a, a topic that we've had symposia, we've worked on policies, we've tried to understand the ethical implications of generative AI, and it's huge. It's just, I think we're just seeing the beginning. It's going to be an enormous impact on society when it really pervades through. Well, and I, I think that any student that that's generating an essay and cheating their way through school to some degree is a bad criminal. And here's the reason why. Wouldn't you just use AI to create a diploma <laughs> and skip the, all the classes completely? Yeah. I, it's, um, it's definitely short-circuiting. It's short-circuiting the educational experience. And you might ask, well, the student only harms themselves when they do that. They only, you know, they give, they take away their own training. They take away their own skills. But it does impact the rest of the students in a classroom because the rest of the students start to wonder, well, does my grade mean anything? And I'm working hard for this. And George, really... George Santos seems to be doing fine. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is, I guess, the case. Uh, so we are concerned with both the ways in which each student harms themselves by short-circuiting the, the training that, that we're trying to provide and also harms the other students, right? Absolutely. Which <laughs> skews the statistics, which... Right. See, it's a big, just a big circle of... Uh, yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, let's back it up a little bit. And let's talk about you. You, uh, how long have you been at, at Boston University? So I've been at Boston University since 1994, if you can believe that. Yeah. Yep. It's been a long time. Uh, I came to BU uh, right out of my uh, PhD studies, and it's been a great experience at BU. You know, one of the things about being a professor is that nobody really tells you what you uh, should or shouldn't spend your time thinking about, and uh, you're free to follow the curiosity that you have about subject. So if you're curious about AI, you can spend your time researching, thinking thinking about ways to improve it or minimize the negative impacts. But for me, that over the course of my time at BU, I've taken a fairly circuitous path through lots of different kinds of research areas, and it's been really, really satisfying because of that. So uh, let's go back to uh, you grew up outside of Buffalo. Why yeah, not? right, right. Yeah. So I grew up uh, Amherst, New York, which is uh, outside of Buffalo. 
grew up enjoying the outdoors. So I went, when I went to college, I thought I was going to, I did study biology. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. Mm. And I, and I, my undergraduate degree is in wildlife biology. So, you know, how did I wind up as a professor of computer science? What happened was I had to pay the bills. So graduate from college, uh, you go out looking for a job. At the time, it was 1982. We had President Reagan in office. He was fairly aggressively dismantling the Department of Interior at the time. And there was not any great prospects for hiring uh, wildlife managers in, into the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. And so jobs were kind of kind of scarce. So I looked around and I had taken one computer science class in college, but I had also done some programming in high school. I was really lucky that my high school had had a couple of teachers that were really up on programming and had some access to some computers, which wasn't that common, really. So I was lucky, and I, and I had some skills, and so I applied for a programming position uh, working for the uh, state of Colorado. I, I had moved to Colorado because that was seemingly a good place for wildlife biologists to live. But when jobs were not very plentiful, I, I looked at the state employment options. And at the time, the, they didn't require you to have a, a degree in computer science to be a programmer. You just needed to take a, like a civil service exam. Have, have you seen a computer yet? <laughs> Good enough. That's right. Yesterday, I couldn't spell it. Today, I am a computer programmer. <laughs> and um, so I did well on the exam, and I, I benefited also from the civil service rules that said that when a position is being filled in the state, they have to interview the top three people on the list. So I went into my first interview, and they looked at me, and they said, you don't have any qualifications for this. What are you doing here? So I left. I went into my second interview and they said, I don't know. We'll take a flyer on you. And uh, they hired me. And uh, it was great. I asked them, do you have some books I can read before I start? And uh, I read the books and um, they were great about training me and giving me responsibility. And so I, I worked as a computer programmer for a couple of years. And then uh, we moved back to, um, to the Buffalo area. And I took another job, still thinking that I was really ultimately wanting to get into wildlife biology. Took another job as a computer programmer. This time it was with a company that did more scientific kind of programming. And I, I started to really enjoy that. That's when I started to think, maybe I should actually get some education in this field. <laughs> So I went, went and got a master's degree. The company that I worked for was super supportive, uh, allowing me to go and take my classes uh, while I was working and got my master's degree. And I noticed during my master's degree, it seemed like the professors really enjoyed their jobs and were doing something kind of fun and cool. And uh, I had a, a great mentor there who gave me some advice about life in academia. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go and get a PhD. And so I did that and uh, came out of the PhD and was lucky enough to get hired at, at BU. And So that was your first stop was BU as a teacher? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's certainly, I mean, I never expected it. It's been, like I said earlier, it's been a fantastic job and I found it super satisfying and enjoyable, but I, I never expected when I was studying wildlife biology that 
I'd be a uh, professor of computer science. How about combining the two and computing outdoors? Well, you know, so I've been beaten to that punch now. I, I, th I um, would love to do that kind of thing, but there's some amazing computer scientists who work with, you know, animal populations. There's, it's a, it's a big data problem collecting movement and, and interaction data from uh, animals. There's quite, quite a few people who do great work in that area, and I, I haven't been one of them, unfortunately. Uh, I'll give you uh, an idea. Uh, you can take it and run with it, but how about right. teaching computing to animals? Oh, it's a growth mm -hmm. area. It's a growth area. I, ha I hadn't actually... Yep, yep. You're the welcome. Light, the light bulb has gone on. You me. are welcome. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. You know, I talked about couple of early programming jobs in both those cases the only way that I could have been successful was that a couple of people key people looked at me and said I'm gonna help this guy find his feet and help him figure out how to succeed at the job and having people like that in your life changes the whole course of your life and I've just been incredibly lucky in that regard incredibly lucky so obviously having mentors, having people that, that you can learn from, people that can influence you in one way or another is important. But did you ask for that help? Or did they volunteer it? They just looked you in the eye and said, this guy's got something special. Because to me, I, I, I think with w what I see in some younger people today is the ask is not mm -hmm. there. The mm -hmm. communication skills is not necessarily there mm -hmm. um, to ask for help to ask to mm -hmm. potentially take a new position or yep. to just inquire about things uh, in general did, did you feel like you asked for help i mean i've always been lucky that i, I do ask a lot of questions and i'm 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 super curious and, and that i think is a is beneficial in life to just ask people how things work and why things work the way they do it it you you can succeed a lot by just sort of listening to what people say when you ask those questions. So that's been good, but I do think that ultimately the kind of mentorship I got was selfless on, on the part of the mentors. It was people just saying, I'm, I just care about other people and I want to help people. And I was one of the people they were, it wasn't that I was particularly special. A lot of the mentors that I had were just really good with everybody, really worked hard to help everyone around them. Um, I'm going to ask you about advice um, for people that want to, A, get involved with computers. Obviously, that's a really wide uh, swath there. But uh, And then the other is uh, maybe somebody who might want to teach computing yeah. at some point. Um, other than the advice of attending Boston University. and That uh, was going to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what... What would you suggest uh, people do? I mean, there's nothing like an internship or or a way of talking to somebody and learning about what the job takes on a daily basis. Right. I often have students come to me and say, you know, I've got some free time. Do you have a project I can do? That's a win-win, right? 
they learn uh, something that they wouldn't have learned in the classroom, and um, I get to work with them and you know maybe push something forward that I'm interested in. This kind of idea of uh, looking around for an opportunity to just sort of pick up knowledge by uh, contributing your time, I think is a, a great strategy. I think you can use that strategy in a lot of different settings. The other thing I would say is I, I would just circle back to the, the incredible uh, resources that are out there. When you're trying to learn something technical, there are incredible resources now. I mean, when we consider applicants to our, um, you know, like our master's program, if they don't have one of the things that they need to succeed in the program, we tell them, look, there's great coursework out there on edX or Coursera or Khan Academy. Just go and study that and you'll be ready when you, when you arrive, right? That's really high quality stuff out there. You can go a long way with what you can get for free on the internet. So that combination of sort of diving in and volunteering and finding an opportunity to contribute your time so that you can learn and then extracting what you can off of the free information that's the free education that's out there is it's a, I think a, a great strategy. And I think it would take you far and eventually yeah you you do wind up getting an internship, you know, one thing leads to another. You get to know people, uh, people get to know you and and good things happen. But computing, you mentioned computing specifically. Computing is great in that in regard in that we all do have access nowadays. We're privileged to have access to computers. And if you do, you know, another aspect of the, of the freeness of information is that really powerful programming tools are, are free now. And you can start messing around and learning to program uh, without much cost other than the computer that hopefully you've already got. I think of the word passion. Um, I, I mean, I would imagine you were very passionate about the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And then I'm assuming you became passionate about computers, where yeah. you where yeah. you are today. I mean, w but you obviously totally had two, different. two passions. Yeah, it's totally so, different. So, uh, you know, it's easy to say, follow your passion. But if you have multiple passions, great, you know, a, yeah. w if you don't have that passion, mm. are you mm. still following that path? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there was a time that I, I, I thought of computer programming as, like I said earlier, paying the bills. It was just what I did while I was trying to work my way into a different, a different industry, into, into you know, wildlife and, and biology. And I think what happened was uh, I, I, I got passionate about computing after some time, right? So... One of the things that I think is, you know, somewhat dangerous about the, the phrase follow your passion is that your passions many times derive from your experiences and you find out about something only if you try something that maybe doesn't really seem all that exciting to you at first. And then you realize, oh, there's something really, really cool here. There's something really valuable and I want to, I want to do more of this. It wasn't, I mean, my first computing, computer programming job, I was doing financial programming, which is essentially relatively sort of straightforward, you know, tabulation of numbers into reports and tables. And it wasn't necessarily looking to me like a bang up career. But then I, again, it was a, 
it was luck and, and mentorship that gave me the opportunity to work in a, a more scientific setting where all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is amazing what, what, uh, what programming can do. So I've definitely become passionate about computer science. Uh, I think what happened was I realized that software gives you the ability to create things that you imagine. And it's incredibly satisfying to do that. It's incredibly satisfying to create things. It's, it's a very, it, it taps into the creativity that many people really strive to, to, to express. So being able to sort of have an idea and then sit down and turn it into something, so a realization of something that actually works based on that idea is um, what instilled that passion in me. It's what, it's what got me really to realize that computing, computer science was pretty cool. Tell me a little bit about your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. as a professor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is post-COVID. Right. You know, I'm sure there was a period of time where you weren't even going into the right. into the, the school at all. Uh, right. I would imagine you still do some work from home, I yep. would imagine. Yep. So what's your day-to-day -day like as far as, I, I think of, just as a layman, I think of, okay, you have to have time to do research. Mm -hmm. You have to have time to teach students. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and then the other thing is how much of, of your job is virtual? Uh, I would mm -hmm. imagine there's a lot of virtual students as well. Yes or no? Yes or no. A little bit. I mean, so I guess the first thing is um, when you start uh, as a professor, one of the first things that happens is you have a sort of a culture shock where you realize that all of a sudden you used to be able to, you know, when you're a graduate student, you used to be able to sit and think about a problem all day long. And all of a sudden, you realize there's about a, a thousand things that are all happening at the same time. And, and you have to, um, very quickly, you develop skills at um, picking up uh, an issue, a subject, a topic, thinking about it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and then moving on to the next thing like that. And um, so you may have half a dozen research projects going. Each one of those, you may think about each of them for half an hour or an hour. You may work with a student for an hour. Those things um, force you to be very agile, just to develop the, the facility at switching contexts, right? Mixed in with that is that uh, teaching is a, a steady, consistent activity over the course of every day, every week. So you know that you're gonna, you're gonna be in the classroom on a regular basis. Uh, you're gonna be thinking each day, part of the day, you're gonna be thinking about either what you're about to teach or what you just did teach or what, how the students are doing or what's the status of the, all the processes like the grading and the, and the lecture preparation stuff that you need to have. And then, um, like I said, the third component of what I do is work within the university to further the, the all the different goals. And the university is a, a bundle of different missions and goals. Now I'm at the point where I've been there for a long time and I'm, I'm involved in all kinds of activities that are uh, helping to develop new, new degree programs, helping to uh, develop new courses. I have mentoring roles with other uh, newer faculty uh, advisory roles on different committees within the university and so forth, and that can actually be remarkably time-consuming, all of that. Uh, so uh, clearly you enjoy your job. Um, 
Absolutely. And the fact that your area of expertise has exploded during your tenure um, from 94, where were we in computing in 94? Right. World Wide um, Web in 94 was something that some people had heard of, most people had not. That's where we were, right? Right. We, we had fixed line telephones and no World Wide Web and most people did not send email to each other. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking about how we thought we were moving fast in that era. Yeah. Um, to knowing now today how incredibly fast things are moving. And are we slow today compared to 20, 30 years from now? Of course, we'll be sitting back and letting the computers do all the work anyway. But I, I, we were saying that at the beginning in the 90s, too, though, that computers are going to take our jobs and all that stuff. And some have, but... Um, but uh, It's concerning. I mean, yeah. it's definitely concerning. And it does seem that things are accelerating when you look at... I think the technology uh, field has is in shock over what's happened in AI in the past year, two years. I think that that's clearly going to change society fundamentally in ways that we're only vaguely anticipating right now. And uh, that's just an example of acceleration. I mean, change has been happening, technological change has been happening faster and faster and faster, and all of a sudden it just seems like it's exploding. Yeah. You know, this is a hard question to answer, but pick up your crystal ball for a moment. Where do you think we're headed next in the computer world in, I mean, it's hard to really know this, but, but what do you see in 10 years? What do you see in five years as far as what you'll be teaching? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, let me start by just saying one of the things we were just talking about AI advancing so quickly. And one of the things that's really coming into focus for me just in the past year is if you think about how we've taught computer science for the whole time that I've been a computer scientist, the foundation of learning to think like a computer scientist comes in largely from learning what it means to program a computer in all its various dimensions, how to do it effectively, efficiently, how to do it correctly. That's where students start. It's just learning how to correctly direct a computer. So creating software is like, you know, it's like tied up with the persona of, of what a computer scientist is and does. And all of a sudden we're seeing AIs capable of creating its own software, right? What does that mean for computer science as a discipline? When instead of needing a computer scientist to write software, I think we're going to see soon that everyday people can ask their AIs to create software for them, right? So how do we teach computer scientists? And what, what's the role of, of coding uh, going to be in five years? That's a really good question. Will we have coursework that is concerned with how to prompt an AI to create software? Is that discipline that we'll, we'll study as, as a kind of new kind of programming or new kind of s skill? That's one of the things that I'm just trying to wrap my head around right now. Uh, do you think you'll at one point be teaching how to stop AI from 
from doing its function because it's out of control and we're you're now it's, teaching the rebels how to fight back it's a very good question there's a a lot of uh, really vigorous debate about whether we uh, at some point may I don't want to say uh, lose control but not anticipate the results of uh, the kinds of AI that we're creating and I think it's a very fair question some people get very worried about it I, I'm not losing a lot of sleep right now but I think we really need to think about it I think we really need to be careful with any kind of system in which we grant control to an AI of some kind any kind of system in which we tell an AI I'm I'll hook you up to my e-trade account and you can trade for me or this is real right or I'll, I'll hook you up to this robot and and let you run on your own or I'll let you manage my my schedule these things are very close to being widely used I mean this kind of thing is already used in pockets in small places but widely used across society I think is right around the corner and we got to be careful we got to think about the implications we got to think about how to make sure that the AI remains uh, the tool that implements our wishes follows our our goals yeah and, and it, it does come down to humans doesn't it who make that decision to to make that leap to to doing the wrong thing with it um uh and obviously you don't have the answers to this nobody does but how do you police that um who knows who knows how you how you keep that under control but uh, again we talked about the nuclear the right. you know the atomic bomb getting in the hands of the wrong right wrong person i mean right how do you do that with computers and yeah you, you kind of can't in a free society for sure um i think we just have to be very very aware and intentional about what we're doing we have to have a lot of conversation it's not clear that there's enough conversation happening right now whether enough people are talking about the things to watch out for the ways in which things can go wrong but we're trying and within the academy right now, there's a lot of conversation. I'm hoping that it's going to expand into society. And there has been some, I mean, we've had some reporters asking the, the spokesperson for the president, what about, you know, AI that's going to destroy the world? Should we be worried? So there's some discussion that's starting to leak out into the popular press. We need to really have that discussion more broadly. We need to be uh, able to, to think about this stuff uh, carefully. Scary because... Up until recent years, recent year maybe, the idea of computers literally taking over has been nothing but a cartoon fantasy. Right. And now you're hearing the scientists worried, right? The professors worried. Wow, we may be here. Not, yeah, I, mean, I mean, not to be some <laughs> are worried. Sky is not falling, but at the same time, you know, most are just aware that there's potential problems, and we need to. Make sure we short circuit those and, and don't let those things happen. But yeah, a uh, couple of years ago we were worried about the Kardashians, and now it's AI, <laughs> which is going to take over the world first. <laughs> yeah, well, we combine the Kardashians and AI, and I think we have something unstoppable. To mm. be honest, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Hmm. 
<laughs> Mark, what what lesson from the past? You've got a fairly long history here with computers. What what lesson from the past has taught you something in in the computer world that has taught you something about where we are now? Is there was there something maybe somebody said to you something you read uh, maybe a change or a shift in the way computers worked or a new language or a new theory was there was there something that sort of taught you uh, a lesson about how to deal with today's teaching of computer science? I mean, I think one thing, when you talk about teaching, I think one thing that's become clear to me over time is that the process of, of making money from restricting access to information is a losing game. And teaching is... In, in my corner of the world, it's uh, increasingly becoming a process where information is, is really given away for free, right? We still teach because it's, it's a human-to-human a -human process of helping someone understand. But the fundamental material is the idea that textbooks should be these expensive things that students have to buy every year or that, you know, you can only learn what's going on in science by you know subscribing to an expensive journal science nature and you have to read those things in the library all of that is is going away and the ability for people to get access to really good high quality information is becoming easier and easier and easier and you know my favorite example is wikipedia because i know many teachers still prohibit their students from using Wikipedia. They say, well, it's unreliable and, and uh, you don't know what the motivation is behind the person who wrote the article and so forth. And that's certainly true for certain subjects, but in my area, Wikipedia is a lovely, beautiful resource. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of the finest distillations of mathematics, general science. It's incredible how useful it is. And, you know, that was all created by people who were volunteers. Uh, do, do you feel like you need to maybe fact check your way through Wikipedia when you use the things that you, you use or the read the things that you read on, on Wikipedia? Uh, I, I mean, I, for that, that same reason, there's certainly a lot of false information out there. Um, and, and I'm not even picking on Wikipedia, mm -hmm. internet in general. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. this or not, but not everything on the internet is <laughs> factual. I think I used that well, in the last podcast, by the way, too, that same line. So I'm really repeating myself. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really interesting how much that varies with the subject matter that you're, you're talking about. When you're talking about, you know, if I go to somebody's blog and they're talking to me about a, they're writing about a political event, something that happened recently in politics, I mean, you have to, process all of that with an enormous grain of salt and a filter and, and consider the perspective. But when you go to a blog and, and someone's summarizing a beautiful mathematical result, it's not likely that they've got an agenda. You just don't incorporate that in your filter, right? What you're really doing is you're appreciating that they took a lot of time to tease out a subtle or difficult subject and explain it to you. So, I just want to sort of emphasize that there's these pockets where 
free information is incredibly high quality. And we, you know, I don't think we always appreciate when we look at all the junk that's out on the internet, we don't always appreciate that there's also an enormous amount of really wonderful stuff. It changes my job. It changes the way I do my job. That's great. I mean, you're right. It, 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 it certainly can be a great resource if we're careful, but you're right. Optimistically, um, you're right. There is yeah. A, a, yeah. probably more truth out there than uh, fiction, but um, Mark Cravilla, professor of computer science and professor of computing and data science at Boston University. Thank you so much for coming by and, and, uh, and giving us a, a whole lesson on uh, where we're going uh, in life and, uh, and how to uh, teach our children. Uh, they are the future, so I understand, as the song goes. So thank you for stopping by and, uh, and, and giving us a lesson on life. Thanks. It's been my pleasure, Andy. I can't wait for the third time you come by. It'll be really excellent. <laughs> That's uh, we get the squeaky amazing. chair, so maybe then. <laughs> Please stop by again, Occupations, and uh, listen to our next uh, broadcast coming up soon. Occupations has been brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com. Please follow Occupations the Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find information about our next episode or to see what past episodes are available.